I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? E is for Earthling. Ah, now then, slightly contentious for some people at least anyway. Released on the 3rd of February 1997, recorded in the Looking Glass Studios in Manhattan. It was produced by Bowie and his, well, Tim Machine cohort Reeves Gabrels and Mark Platty as well, who's a very talented guy. And interestingly, it was the first self-produced LP for Bowie since Diamond Dogs. That's right. So it's Bowie's 20th studio album, possibly his most controversial since the dress cover version of The Man Who Sold the World. Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that the, the Man Who Sold the World, the cover, I mean, uh, nowadays you look at it and it's just a brilliant cover. And mm. they've re- repressed it and reissued it and all that kind of thing. But at the time, it really was a man in a dress and nobody could handle it. It but, was. But in this one, of course, uh, sartorially, Earthling, we'll get to it later, but an amazing cover. Absolutely, a wonderful cover. Um, uh, recorded five days after the outside tour was finished, Bowie and Reeves Gabrels started work on the album itself, went into the studio with nothing written whatsoever, came out 18 days later, having recorded everything. Now, they say, you know, nothing written and all that, but of course, what Bowie had in mind, he had a real template in mind for how the album was going to sound, but it wasn't what anybody was expected. So the personnel being David Bowie, obviously, vocals, guitar, alto sax, samples and keys, Reeves Gabrell's programming, synths, real and sample guitar, so the, the word sampling is cropping up a lot, we'll get to that, mm-hmm. Mark Platy, programming, loops, sampling and keys, Galen Dorsey on bass, Zach Alford on drums and Mike Garson of course on keys and piano. Yeah, so one notable word used heavily in the instrumentation is samples, as you just mentioned, appears for the first time on a Bowie record and the key word for Bowie was aggression, wasn't it? It was, yeah, and also the way that he chose to express it, and this is where the contentious part comes in, but not for me, I have to say, and even at that point in time, was the drum and bass element of it, which a lot of people found mm. really problematic. Yeah. And really kind of, I remember it being quite vicious in some parts, you know, saying that David Bowie's trying to appropriate something that belongs to a younger generation and saying that he was just out of character. But, I mean, Bowie was up for anything, as we know. Well, it's a recurring thing in Bowie's life, isn't it, which we, we'll examine, we continue to examine. He's always kind of latching on to whatever's interesting, whatever 
whatever kind of piques his curiosity, he's there, irrespective of what age he is at the time. And the Prodigy were a band that he absolutely yeah. loved. And I remember hearing those, you know, you hear like Breathe and those records, and they mm. did sound so, they don't sound so kind of amazing now, though the production is great. Yeah. But yeah. when they landed, they were game-changing, weren't they? Yeah. And, and Bowie genuinely loved it. So legend has it that Bowie left a series of messages, didn't he, on Liam Howlett's answering machine, Liam Howlett of Prodigy, of course, which should have been called perhaps the non-answering non machine because he didn't get back to him. So legend has it. Well, that's a story as I understood it, which was like, you know, from my point of view, you would think that maybe the guy from The Prodigy would think, wow, I've got David Bowie on mm. here, that's great. But he, he wasn't interested, was he? No, he wasn't. Liam Howlett did talk to one of the uh, monthly magazines a few years ago, and he said, yes, he did meet Bowie a couple of times, had a few chats about it, uh, but he just wasn't really into Bowie at the time, so it didn't interest him enough. He did say, if it had been uh, Chuck D, a public enemy, asking, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Right. There's the same guy who also turned down Madonna as well, so he had very sort of specific ideas of what he wanted to do with his life at that time. I wonder if he's still got the same specific ideas now. Probably. I mean, you know, it's probably something that he doesn't regret. But, um, yeah, the thought of the, uh, the opportunity of working with Bowie, most people would jump on, wouldn't they? Yeah. But, you know, it was the first David Bowie album to be recorded entirely digitally, which mm. is just another uh, example of where we're up to uh, in technology. And some of the sounds on it went from, say, a saxophone to a sampler and then through a synth. So all these processed sounds... Uh, he likened his interpretation of drum and bass uh, to the way he sort of appropriated the Philly sound, the soul sound for young Americans in 1975. He described himself as a synthesist. Mm. That's easy for me to say. Uh, but yeah, he was just, again, just the same thing. Just uh, And he's often described as a sponge, isn't he? He will take in things that are, are going on around yeah. him and then make and then put his own stamp on it, which he, which he most certainly did. You know, a lot of people look at it and think, now, David Bowie, this isn't your scene, mate. This is ours. Go away. But it's all about how you use it, wasn't it? It wasn't just like a bandwagon jumping thing. Bowie used it brilliantly. And it is a great record. It does kind of, you know, split opinion, certainly. But there's no doubt it is a wonderful piece of work. I really thought it was great. You know, and you listen to like Little Wonder and Dead Man Walking, I'm Afraid of Americans. That, that's mm. all thrilling stuff for me anyway. And the live shows were fantastic. I mean, I was lucky enough to introduce Bowie on stage at the uh, Academy. It was the 23rd of July, 1997. Right. And it was uh, such an amazing day for me because I went and it was a boiling hot day and I went straight from at Radio 1 over to the Academy in Manchester and saw him doing the sound check uh, and I remember him uh, he was talking actually he was talking to me for a short while about um, Oasis covering Heroes really? yeah wow. and, uh, and somebody played it to him a little bit of it whilst he was on the stage it was a, a really kind of magical moment and then afterwards I went and had a chat with him and had a photograph taken with him yeah. naturally and then I went away and got changed because I was so sweaty you've obviously you've got to look the part if you're of course you have and you can't smell can you? well I, well, well, I don't know about that <coughs> um, but uh, then I went back later on in the evening they obviously it was sold out the academy only held 2,000 people which was tiny for David Bowie mm. and uh, and so I, I met David again then I met uh, Iman as well uh, then uh, I took to the stage and I introduced David Bowie and I said ladies and gentlemen waifs and strays please welcome to Manchester the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever David Bowie and I turned around because there was an extra little stage, a tiny little kind of plinth type thing at the front of the stage for Bowie to stand on. And I was stood on that using his mic and I turned around and I was that close, Bob, which Ooh, as you can see... That is very close. It's very, very close to tippling over oh. and falling down <laughs> probably oh. about 10 feet, wow. which would have been probably the worst moment of my life, you know, professionally speaking as of well, course. if I can use that word. And then Bowie, as I walked around, and just about made it. And I think Bowie spotted it because he was smirking and he winked at me and then went on and did quicksand, <laughs> I think you're right. right.
How fantastic. I love that. You also got invited to his 50th birthday bash, didn't you, in New York? I did at Madison Square Garden, and I didn't go. I mean, I, I might have been able to swing you. It was a little bit complicated because of work and everything, but, you know, and then it turned into such... You know, Lou Reed uh, got up with him, and all oh, manner of people that yeah, yeah, up, didn't yeah. he? And Smashing Pumpkins, yeah, and all the people. And all that yeah, yeah, all that. Uh, so, and Foo Fighters. I do, I do regret not going. Well, I bet you do. Also, the summer of 97, very sort of important, very busy time for Bowie, wasn't it? So July 97, he's headlining the uh, one of the days of the Phoenix Festival. Yeah. There's another story here as well, because, I mean, um, Radcliffe and I have been like the only real Bowie fans on Radio 1. We were asked to go and cover it for Radio 1, so right. we were going to take to the uh, airwaves, and the idea being Radcliffe would be in a uh, portable studio, and I would be on the side of the stage. So I wouldn't be introducing Bowie to the crowd, but Mark would hand over to me and say, I believe David Bowie's about to go on and I wouldn't I'd set the scene and all that kind of Ooh. stuff and uh, and then Bowie would take to the stage and I just could not wait so again it was a really hot sweltering day and uh, we set off in plenty of time in Stratford not that far away and we got within around about oh, and this is infamous we got to around about seven miles away from the site and it was just gridlock mm. absolute gridlock and we couldn't go anywhere and so we waited for around about three hours I'm not kidding just Ooh. trundling maybe getting a, a mile in that much time right. and I just thought right well, this isn't going to happen it's, you know it's just too much and so it was arranged for a uh, motorbike to come and pick Radcliffe up and right. take him to the site and the guy wouldn't come back and get me so that's that show business so why wouldn't he come back for you it was just I, logistics I don't know I think they just found somebody on site and said will you do a will you do a trip out and back again and you right. know it was right. one of those I mean I should have just offered him a, a bundle of money really uh, but we were stood there uh, in, in this car just with in the van with the doors open with the heat and it was just very oppressive and, and depressing mm. and there was this really like rusty old banger in front of us parked up just trundling along just in front of us and at one point the car pulled over onto the side onto the verge yeah. which was a field naturally uh, and the doors flung open and out got these two girls they looked like probably around about I don't know, 20 years old, really, really long hair, like, you know, T-shirts on, hot pants and platform boots. Right. <laughs> and you're thinking, right, OK, where's this going to go? <laughs> they open up the back of the car mm. and take out this jacket and then shut the boot of the car. So we're going, what, what's going on there? That Wow, that's an amazing jacket. It's a, it's a Union Jack jacket. I wonder what that's all about. And so that was it. I didn't make it to the show. And we went into Stratford and I was with Stuart McConey and various other people. And I remember getting enormously drunk. And I also remember doing a phone link to Radcliffe live, being really, really drunk really? and upset outside a pub <laughs> in Stratford. Um, and, and, and Radcliffe did the programme and the broadcast went out and everything. Yeah. And it was only like the day later when Bowie was in all of the um, papers, having mm. done this amazing show, this brilliant show at, at the Phoenix Festival, that he was wearing that coat. And it was the famous Alexander McQueen coat oh. that ended up on the cover of Earthling and became iconic. And it was in the uh, V&A. Uh, yeah, um, well, he wore it on every date of the Earthling tour, didn't he? This is a famous Union Jack frock coat, which had yeah. been sort of artfully distressed with sort of slashes in it and cuts with razors and burn holes and the rest of it. Yeah. Great piece of work. And wow. I was that close to being able to pinch it before oh. I'd even seen it. And I didn't take the opportunity. But uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great day for me, that. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Okay, E is also for The Elephant Man. 
So let's set the scene. New York, 1979. David Bowie is in town to record an appearance on Saturday Night Live. And whilst there, he decides to go to the theatre to see the stage production of Bernard Pomerantz's uh, play The Elephant Man. Been staged in London two, di- two years before that, mm. but it had been a bit of a flop. But the producer, a guy called Richmond Crinkley... Richmond Crinkley. I'm going to change my name to Richmond Crinkley. I want that name. Anyway, he loved it. He saw it in London. He loved it, despite the uh, dwindling audiences. Took it back to Broadway. And by 79, it was a big success. Yeah, I mean, most people are aware of The Elephant Man, aren't they? Uh, Particularly because of the film, the David Lynch film, with John Hurt, with that remarkable performance from Mm. 1981. Uh, But it was The Life of John Merrick. Bowie had seen the production, and it was played by a guy called Philip Anglim. Mm. And unlike the film version, they didn't use any props or prosthetics or anything. It was just... It was all done by just a delivery. Yeah, and gesture. And which rest. was a very brave thing to do. And Bowie did say, when he saw it, he said, oh, you know what, I wished I'd been offered that role. Mm. Uh, which is really brave. I mean, if you think that his acting talents were mercurial, as we know, the man who fell to earth will get to that was just so great. Yes. But Just a Gigolo wasn't. So that is 79, isn't it? Just yeah. a Gigolo. But he, he did have the confidence and the chops mm. to think I could actually take that on. But just a, just a passing comment at yeah. this point in time. Absolutely. So the following year, 1980, Bowie's in New York again. He's at the Power Station studio recording what turned out to be uh, scary monsters and he's approached by Jack Hoffice whose job it was to recast the play. Uh, Hoffice later admitted he, he knew that the uh, the casting he knew that Bowie was interested in playing John Merrick and thought, well, he'd be perfect. He'd seen uh, Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth and thought, this is the guy. Not being daft. I mean, if you were to put David Bowie on Broadway, then bums on seats immediately. Mm. And uh, but, uh, but it was a brave thing to do. So it was a couple of months passed by. So he, now, June 1980, and the offer's made, uh, but Bowie is given just one day to make his mind up, right, to a six-month commitment. Now, mm. if you think of David Bowie around this time again, you know, he's, he's one of the greatest and biggest rock stars in the world. World, and he's been asked to give up six months yeah. of his time for something that presumably wouldn't have been a massive earner for him, not like, you know, a world tour or no. whatever. Yeah. But Bowie's sense of uh, adventure and mischief, he had one day to accept it, and he took it, as he, we know. Absolutely. So he took it all very, very seriously. As you can imagine, it is a big commitment. He flew back to London at one point, spent some time looking at various artefacts from the time, belongings that uh, were once owned by John Merrick, his clothes, he saw his skeleton, the mm. body cast, yep. even the paper model of a church which was uh, made by Merrick, which is also portrayed in the film, isn't it, very kind of movingly? Oh, it is. I mean, if you can get through that film without sobbing oh. uncontrollably, then you, you need to go and see a doctor, I reckon. But, yeah, yeah I mean, and again, typical Bowie just going there and, and taking it all in. I mean, he didn't invent method acting, let's no. be honest, but, you know, just trying to get into the into the character, you know, and work out exactly the kind of suffering that this poor fellow yeah. went through. To go and do that is a pretty, pretty great thing to do. But, yeah, so they're yeah, scheduled to open in Denver, and uh, this is interesting. Again, mm. you know, I mean, there's some caution within. No press passes were to be allowed. No yeah. journalists encouraged to attend. Uh, to keep, like, the pressure on Bowie to a minimum. Yeah. So, two weeks rehearsal in San Francisco, which apparently Bowie took very, very seriously, even mm. To the point of at one stage, he had to apologise to the other cast members because he was getting so vociferous and, you know, probably... Because um, he's used to orchestrating and telling people what to do, isn't he? Yeah, of course. And yeah. so he, he, old habits die hard, all that. Yeah, and he's uh, so anxious about doing it right as well that he even flies back to New York to watch Philip Anglim's final performance as John Merrick and then back off to Denver for last rehearsals. He's probably got this idea of what it could be like in his head already formed. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to compare the two different performances, how radically mm. different Bowie 
always was from Anglims, you know. I mean, yeah. You would imagine no props and all that. It have to be kind and the same dialogue, but mm. to deliver it, it's a very personal kind of performance. It would have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. So 29th of July, 1980, is the opening night in Denver at the Centre for Performing Arts. Uh, and needless to say, despite not being invited at all, the press get in there. Of course they do. The great thing is, they loved it from the off. Yeah, one described Bowie as the perfect incarnation of a matinee idol, which Bowie will have loved. Yeah. So it all went swimmingly. Then it moved to Chicago's Blackstone Theatre for four weeks, and uh, by this time, everybody's much more confident, aren't they? That's right. And finally, of course, you get to the Booth Theatre on Broadway, opening night, 23rd of September, 1980. All sorts of celebs in attendance, as you might imagine. Andy Warhol's there, David Hockney, Christopher Isherwood, Elizabeth Taylor. More of whom later. Brian Eno, more of whom later Erin Copeland's there, William Burroughs, and Bowie's mum, Peggy. She must have been so proud. Again, it has been well documented that she was uh, not particularly encouraging of Bowie's artistic mm. bent, was she? Mm. she? She wanted him to get a proper job and all that kind of stuff. But she was accompanied by Kenneth Pitt, yeah. who was Bowie's uh, manager previously. Yes. So, I yeah. mean, that, that is a really kind of, that's a, a sweet scenario it is. to think of, those both being there. It's really touching, isn't it? And the press loved it, so the New York Post headline was Bowie blazing on Broadway. Uh, during the stint, Bowie declared his love for the city and just loved the idea that you could be a star but not be treated like one necessarily. You could walk around. Well, Lou Reed always said that. Lou Reed says, you know, uh, if you go around in London, and he wasn't that that famous, he wasn't like a Bowie kind of mm, character, but obviously mm. a huge cult figure and got bigger and bigger. But he would say, like, in, the, I remember an interview with him, he'd say, I like New York because people, if they, if they see you but they don't know you, they just go, hi, Lou. But uh, in London, they'd ask you for your autograph yeah. and maybe have a photograph taken and all that kind of stuff. I love this. Uh, Bowie actually said, you can see Al Pacino walking about, or Joel Grey jogging, Joel Grey being out of the film Cabaret. Yeah. He said, it's great, but whilst this all was going on, John Lennon was shot by yeah. Mark Chapman. So obviously, you know, this sends shockwaves through the celebrity world. Uh, security was upped for all the rock stars. Hoffis even offered Bowie the option of less time on stage during the play to minimise the risk of him uh, getting shot. And he, he said no, as you'd imagine. That is, I mean, the thought of having to, you know, go through even that conversation yeah. must have been so harrowing and mm. traumatic. And let's not forget, John Lennon had become a really good friend of Bowie. So yeah. not only had he lost Lennon, but he'd also had to go through this personal kind of sacrifice of putting himself in the public line every night. Yeah. The really scary thing was that, I, and I've seen the photograph, we've all seen the photograph, sadly, of Mark Chapman with John Lennon. Yeah. I've also seen the photograph of uh, Mark Chapman with Bob Dylan. Mm. I didn't know that Mark Chapman, there was also found uh, in his possessions a photograph of Davy Bowie coming out of the stage door at Booth's having Ooh. performed The Elephant Man. Oh, so, it's chilling, isn't it? It really, really chilling. It really is. Worth saying as well that in total, Bowie played the part of John Merrick on stage 157 times between 1980 and 81. Wow. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. E is for Eel Pie Island. This is such a sweet story. It is. And it, it makes me want to go on my holidays to Eel Pie Island, though I, would, I think probably a couple of hours it might cover it. But anyway, mm. let's get to it. Eel Pie Island, it's an island, never. Mm. And it is in the River Thames at Twickenham, and it can be reached only by footbridge or boat, like most islands. Yes, that's right. Well pointed out there, Mark. But it's a privately owned island, and yeah. it hosts the Eel Pie Island Hotel, which in the 20s and 30s, it used to host ballroom dances, and uh, yeah, the gentry would go there, and it was mm. very, you know, very well to do and, and, and an amazing setting. Yeah, Brilliant. a nice night out and the rest of it. So 1956, a trumpeter by the name of Brian Rutland started Jazz Nights there and a few years after that Arthur Chisnell, I love these <laughs> names I really do, started pr- putting on... You're R- making these up, Rob. <laughs> started putting on R&B nights. Yeah. So all the main British R&B bands started playing. The Stones played there a lot. Uh, the Tridents, which at that point included Jeff Beck in yeah. the lineup. The Who were there loads. The Yardbirds, Long John Baldry's Hoochie Coochie Men featuring Rod Stewart more of which in a bit. And Bowie, of course, was a regular. Yeah, the 26th of July, 1964, he gets to perform in the venue with the Manish Boys. Uh, and Bob Solly, who was a keyboard player, I interviewed mm. Bob Solly once. You've, have you interviewed him? No, I haven't. He's a really, really mm. good fella. And he, he remembers the worst part of the night was carrying the gear over the bridge. So that is it. I mean, obviously, uh, you don't think about that, but no. uh, yeah, they can't take the van up to the front door. No. They're not likely to have their own boat, mm. the tour boat. No. So they had to carry the gear all over the bridge. But yeah, the 19th of August, 1964, David Jones and the Manish Boys make another appearance, sharing the bill with Long John Baldry and the Hoochie Coochie Men, as you mentioned, with Rod Stewart. Yeah, OK, so 2nd of September, he's back again, and this is where it gets really interesting, because uh, a month later, 7th of October, back at the Earpie Hotel, again once more with Long John Baldry mm. with Rod Stewart. The two bands sharing the first floor dressing room, where Rod revealed, apparently, that instead of traditional Y-front undies, he is, in fact, wearing... Ladies' knickers. Yeah, <laughs> this is a great story, isn't it? Yeah, so Bob Solly is quoted saying, uh, We asked him why he wore girls' underwear, and he said it was because they were more <coughs> comfortable. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> public domain, I'll take his word for it, Bob, Fine. and all yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff. But you have to wonder whether that had any kind of effect on David Bowie, leave it, just to say whether he's thinking, Right, okay, now he, he, this is good on Rod Stewart, mm. you know, I mean, he's just like this uh, working class lad with a great voice. I wonder if he's breaking all the kind of gender stereotypes. Yeah. And maybe I should do that in the future, or maybe they just went off and had a good laugh about it. Well, very possibly. But, you know, it is interesting that you could perhaps trace Bowie's kind of, you know, cross-pollination of genders to 
perhaps Rod Stewart. We're just saying, aren't we? You know, and uh, let's not forget that Rod Stewart appears on Diamond Dogs in the in the audience scene, doesn't he? Yeah. So the yeah. clapping and all that. So the hotel yeah. closed in 1967, reopened in 1969 as Colonel Barefoot's Rock Garden. Oh, I love that. Featuring Black Sabbath and Egg De Broughton Band, more of whom later, mm. Mott the Hoople, Genesis, King Crimson, but it burnt down in 1971. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Hype were scheduled to play there, weren't they? Yeah, yeah Bowie's band, the Hype, yeah, in uh, 1970 got cancelled, though. It did. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. So E is for Earl Slick. Yeah, the guitar player. Born Frank Madaloni, 1st of October 1952. Had a great reputation as a, a guitarist as uh, in New York in the early 70s. He started off in a band called Mack Truck. Yeah, now, uh, so Earl Slick isn't his real name. And no. I always wondered, is it? does it relate to an oil slick? I don't know. Earl I really slick. don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's just yeah. a bad play on words. It's a great name anyway. I mean, it's a great non-deplume, isn't it? But I just wondered if it did allude to that. But yeah. he was introduced to Davy Bowie by uh, Michael Kamen, wasn't he? Yeah. Who worked yeah. with Bowie himself, and brother mm. to Nick Kamen, I think. You know, who did the underpants. Oh, was advert, he really? Yeah, for right. Levi's and all that. Just a just a bit of colour for wow, you. Wow, that is a bit of colour, yeah. But yeah, he met Kamen backstage at the Joffrey Ballet, didn't mm. he? And uh, so I wonder if this, you know, I mean, uh, Bowie was very cultured and all of that kind of stuff. But there's old stories of him taking uh, the spiders to the opera and yeah. ballet and all that kind of stuff <laughs> to pick up ideas. Yeah. Well, because oh, like, Mick Ronson and all of the spiders are going to what we're going to, what we're going to Covent Garden for, yeah. you know. And so they're all sat there. Taking it in and absolutely loving it. These guys from Hull had never been to the opera before yeah. or the ballet or whatever it was on that particular night. And Bowie said, Look at the lighting, look at the staging. Yeah, yeah. This is what we can do. So, uh, you know, you wonder if Bowie's like continually going around with this sense of, you know, that sponge that we've mentioned yeah. whereby he wants to take things in and use them elsewhere. Yeah, of course. I mean, he did a similar thing with uh, Alice Cooper as well. They took the band to see him. Look, this is how you can do theatrical rock and yeah, the rest yeah. of it. So at the time, of course, Mick Ronson was busy working with Ian Hunter on his solo stuff. Bowie needed a sidekick guitarist enter Earl Slick who was 22 at the time yeah so Earl Slick got the call and it was to go into a studio in New York City where Bowie and Tony Visconti they were actually working on Diamond Dogs at the they time were. weren't they and this is a recurring theme we've mm. mentioned uh, so he walked into the studio and he was told to plug in and wait for instructions from Tony Visconti so Tony Visconti just said to him I'm going to play some tracks and you've got to play along so Earl Slick again this happened with Adrian Bellew yeah. and also with Robert Fripp Earl Slick says, right, what key's it in? Doesn't matter. Just play. Uh, and, and he did this. He and, did. and it was one of those things. 15 minutes later, apparently, Bowie joins him in the studio. He's very, very friendly. Mm. And then was sent packing, not knowing whether he'd got the job or not. That's how it works. I, I talked to Earl Slick a few years ago and he said, auditioning for Bowie in 74 was the most bizarre thing I've ever done in my life. I said, I was a young lad, 22, 23, pretty cocky. But there was no band in there, just me and my guitar with David in dark glasses in the control room. Quite frightening, you would imagine. A lot of pressure on him at that time. Yeah, and so um, he he went away. Didn't know he got the job or not. And then he said, this is to quote Earl Slick, thank God the phone rang the next day. And it was her. Mm. Now we're wondering if her would have been Coco Schwab. We imagine it probably was. You would think so, probably, wouldn't you? So Earl Slick is hired for the Diamond Dogs tour. Uh, turns out that some of his work in the studio ended up on uh, When You Rock and Roll With Me yeah, on the and, album. And of course, uh, there's the Diamond Dogs and Philly Dogs tour, which we will cover uh, at length later in the series. Absolutely. But he's all over David Live. He's a mm. great rock and roll guitarist. Uh, he is. He's such a great player. No doubt about it. At the end of the tour, Earl Slick had also appeared on Young Americans. He's on Fame and across 
the universe, isn't he? The John Lennon tracks. And he's invited to play on Station to Station. Yeah. Now, Station to Station, uh, you've, got a, you've got a story about this. So the round window, <laughs> isn't it, Bob? It is, the round window today. So here he goes. So this is him saying, so when we cut Station to Station, a lot of it just happened spontaneously, as we know. He says, my God, there were some late nights <laughs> during that album. He was very careful, diplomatic about what he talked about here. But we know that they what were both was going living on? certain lifestyles. Okay. I remember rehearsing in some uh, shitty-ass studio somewhere in Hollywood. Uh, Keith Moon showed up one day and just thought he was the coolest guy in the whole world. The recording schedule was way off the page. The song Stay, for example, was originally going to be the reworked version of uh, John and Only Dancing. Right. I suddenly came up with that riff. It was just me messing about and then David built an entire song around that riff. So that's how it's just this spontaneity all the time going on. But he, he, I don't think Earl Slick, does Earl Slick get a credit on stay? I should pro- probably know this, but Ooh, I don't. I think he does, doesn't he, Bo? Right, OK, OK, good. Uh, and he said, but, you know, essentially the methodology for station to station was basically the same as recording uh, reality, you know, later on, which we'll get to, just kicking around ideas. Right, OK, so uh, all going very swimmingly, and he was like, he was Bowie's right-hand man and, and so great at his yeah. job, but uh, he was a game of going to Wembley now, 1976, in the White Light Tour, mm. and uh, he was asked to go out on the tour, and the story has it, I mean, again, maybe he said something to you, but that he was offered a fee which he didn't think uh, was uh, worthy of the job, really. Right. He thought he was being hugely underpaid. And so he ducked out, didn't he? And they he called did. in another guy, Stacey Hayden, yeah. who was younger than Earl Slick. He Was was he 21 at the time? He was 21, a Canadian guy. Nobody yeah. had really heard of him, had they? It was no. An unknown quantity. Earl Slick, of course, also worked with Ian Hunter yep. later on, and famously with John and Yoko on Double Fantasy. And after John's death, he was working with Yoko for quite a while. Skip forward to 1983, and he's back for the serious Moonlight Tour, which is a story in itself, isn't it, this one? Well, I mean, oh, again, we have touched on it, forgive us. But, uh, yeah, so Stevie Ray Vaughan, all over Let's Dance, you know, an, an amazing guitarist, really so good. But he wasn't offered enough mm. to play on the tour. Uh, so there is history repeating here. And, and, again, it was his manager, apparently not Stevie Ray Vaughan, who just wouldn't accept the deal. And uh, I have heard a story that Stevie Ray Vaughan just uh, ended up getting out of a car that had Bowie in it and being left by the roadside and, really? and off into the distance. Whoa, okay. um, so Stevie Ray Vaughan didn't go out on the tour. So, mm. right, well, we'd better go and get Earl Slick then. And I don't know whether he was offered the same money as Stevie Ray Vaughan or whatever, uh, but he went on to do one of the biggest grossing tours at that point in time, possibly the biggest grossing yeah. tour. I mean, he was just monumental, wasn't it? And yeah. I, you, we both saw it at Milton Keynes. Yeah, we did, And it yeah. was so, so oh, good. It was spectacular. So glad I saw Earl Slick in his pomp. And of course, the relationship with Bowie's carried on uh, through 2002 with Heathen, as I mentioned just before, he was on reality in 2003. And of course, the next day as well. Yeah, and I went to see, um, uh, well, it was actually Steve Harley doing a benefit gig in Hull at the City Hall for, there was a pretty sad kind of Mick Ronson um, memorial mm. in a, a park in Hull. And when we went there to have a look at it, it had gone. Uh, and so Steve Harley, about 18 months previously, had said that he would go and come back to the city and do a benefit for uh, raising some money to get a decent memorial for Mick right. Ronson. So right. good on you, Steve. Yeah. Uh, and so they did this benefit gig and Lisa Ronson performed, uh, lots of different people, but Earl Slick got up as well. He had a few problems with his amplifier, which was a bit of a drag, but they did stay. Right. Uh, and, and that's the last time I saw Earl Slick performing. Right, okay. Um, but I think he's actually, I think he's working with uh, Glenn Matlock these days and Slim Jim Phantom. I think they've got that band going. Yeah, I did read about that. The thing he said, the really important thing he said to remember about Bowie, he said to get the best from musicians, he realised he had to give them an overview and then just let them go. And that gives you total freedom. And that's what he loved about it. Right. The latest out of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
E is for Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, Elizabeth Taylor, an unexpected chapter in Bowie's life, you might think. Let us explain more. So Elizabeth Taylor, of course, actress born 27th of February 1932, died March 2011, aged 79. Started off child actress Lassie Come Home, uh, second film in 1943. She was only 11. The big breakthrough, of course, was National Velvet, wasn't it, in 44? And she's still only 12. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Lots of roles. Oh, we can't get into the whole thing. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Cleopatra with Richard Burton, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. With Richard Burton. Burton. The Taming of the Shrew. With Richard Burton. Dr. Faustus. Well, you know, mm. there is a pattern emerging Definitely. here, isn't there? So she liked Richard Burton. <laughs> she did, I think. Yeah, and so much that she married him twice. Twice. And now all this is famous and well uh, documented. But uh, the Vatican accused Burton and Taylor of erotic vagrancy. Now, what is that? I mean, that is a great phrase. It's, never... it's never been levelled at me, mate. I've so... never had that either. Okay. It was an open letter sent to her, apparently. I, I mean, they were on, they were sort of cavorting on the set of Cleopatra. Both of them were married at the time, weren't they? Mm. Mm. So the Vatican obviously frowned on this very much. Well, apparently there was uh, some paparazzi shots of them on a yacht yeah. together, and that's what set them all off. Um, so, yeah, but 1975, this was during a second marriage to Richard Burton, mm-hmm. which was, as we know, a fiery, feisty relationship. Yeah. They were both heavy drinkers, and it was yeah, pretty robust, put it that way. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor asked her friend Faye Dunaway, Bonnie and Clyde and mm-hmm. all that, to organise a get-together at director George Cukor's house, as she was considering David Bowie for a part in the next film, which was a bluebird yeah. Which obviously he didn't get. No, he but... didn't get. I mean, Bluebird isn't a great film at all. In fact, it's, it's a right turkey, no pun intended. But it just <laughs> didn't make any money at the box office whatsoever. So Bowie doesn't get the part. However, photographer Terry O'Neill was invited to take shots of the two of them together. Right, OK. So this was when she was engin- trying to engineer all of the uh, yeah. the whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, of course, you know, Bowie's 75. We've got to remember here, he's not in the best shape health-wise, is he, at all? No. He's not really looking after himself. Add to that, you've got uh, Terry O'Neill who said, if there's one person you don't want to keep waiting... It's Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, it could have been like a recipe for disaster because Bowie was It was at least late. two hours late. I've heard two hours late and four hours late, but mm. uh, it was only because of Terry Neal's like, diplomacy that she stayed, and, mm. and she did want to meet him. So, yeah, fair play. But when Bowie landed, O'Neill immediately told them to strike a pose, right? So they embraced. She was probably a bit frosty at this point in time. Yes. She took out a cigarette and lit it, yeah. and then Bowie took it off her. So, I mean, very romantic, sharing oh, a tab. Very I mean, nice. you know, I, I yeah. could cry. Mm. Uh, and the photographs just went global, didn't they? Yeah, and naturally, OK, so photos are everywhere. People are thinking, ah, what's going on? Is there more than just a little embrace and a, and a ciggy going on here? Rumours of an affair were kind of circulated and, and the rest of it. I think, really, it was just a friendship between two people that lasted for... A certain amount of time? <laughs> An hour, maybe. <laughs> uh, we will never know. We will never know. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. E is for Earl's Court. So Earl's Court is in Bowie Law because on the 12th of May 1973, it is the uh, scene of the opening night of the Aladdin Sane tour. Now, Earl's Court hadn't really been used as a rock venue before, had it? Never. There's rumour that Slade were going to play that first show, but I think Bowie got in there first. Well, he did get in there first. Well, that's a little bit like the previous story about um, taking Guy Peel art and, uh, and hijacking the artwork for Diamond Dogs yeah. before it's only rock and roll from the Rolling Stones. But Slade had it booked in because Slade Slade were much bigger than Bowie. Yes. I mean, they were just incredibly big. Mm. And so looking for a space, because it does all ideal home exhibitions and all that kind oh, of thing. Oh, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah Show course. jumping and all. Yeah. It's, just a, it's just a huge, huge enormodome. Um, and so Slade were in there, had it booked, and then Bowie got wind of this and thought, right, my tour has sold out. Mm. We need to set the whole thing. Because they couldn't get the Hammersmith Odeon. It was busy that night. Yeah, that's right. And they had it booked in later on in, in the tour at the end of it. So mm. they thought they could book, bookend it by starting there and finishing there. But they 
yeah. couldn't. So what better way to do it than go to a venue that holds, what is it, 18,000 18, people? So rather think, than three and a half thousand yeah. people, which the Hammersmith Odeon Yeah. Holds. So on the outside, it seems like a great idea. Let's make a really big grand statement here. First night of the tour. But of course, they haven't reckoned for the fact the acoustics, the lack of, you know, the gear being really inadequate, to put it mildly. All sorts of problems going on with the show itself, uh, even to the fact that Bowie was in one of that really famous white kimono outfit that he mm. had on with his sort of white boots. And apparently, according to people who were there, his boots kept slipping down. So the, the sight was a Bowie, you know, crouching down half the time, trying to pull his boots back up. Right. He also had this gold lipstick on, which was so sticky that he couldn't open his mouth half the time to sing. He got all claggy. <laughs> so people were treated to the sight of him, kind of, you know, wiping this lipstick on his kimono sleeve. And, and if you think about it, they were so organised, uh, it really was taking care of business and all that, the mm. Elvis kind of scenario, with Tony DeFries and yeah. everything really, you know, nailed and Bowie was flying at this time. But it seems to be the case that they didn't really think too long and hard about the fact that they had a rig that they were going to take around to venues that were probably no bigger than the Hammersmith Odeon yeah. on yeah. that tour. Mm. The Lesser Free Trade Hall was roughly the same size, a bit smaller. But you need, if you're going to up the capacity by fivefold, then you're going to need fivefold PA system. Yeah, of course. And and be, and be equipped for it. And they weren't, I'm sure they weren't daft enough to just go in there with the exact same rig. No. But whatever it was, was just uh, inferior and, and, and not up to the job. And that's what really set everybody off. And so there was rioting. Yeah. They? They, mean, they even left the stage at one point and had to come back on and Bowie had to placate them. Yeah. Uh, the promoter came on just to calm them down. Yeah. They were ripping seats up. They were pissing in the aisles yeah, and all manner right. of things. So yeah. it, was, it was a disaster. For the, for the opening night of the tour... It's bad, and you can imagine at this point in time, I think, uh, again, it, the the relationship with the Spiders broke down in that tour. Yeah, sure. And Bowie was now flying. Mm. You imagine that, he would have been absolutely livid yeah, yeah. With, with what was going on in, in that particular scenario. Yeah, absolutely. We should also mention there is a great uh, photograph that does the rounds. It often crops up on uh, on the internet of a very young John Beverly. Uh, later, uh, Sid Vicious, about to go to that. He's all dressed up to the nines and he looks great. I mean, at that point in his life, you know, he's just a teenage kid, another big Bowie fan, and he just looks fantastic and with his little red T-shirt on and a leather jacket. And he's got the Oxford bag pants on yeah. that Bowie used to wear and it's almost like a little Bowie cut that he's got, isn't it? You know, yes. it's not ginger, but I yeah. mean, it is a, it's a really sad photograph, that, isn't it? Because you think he's not that much longer yeah. that he goes through all the, uh, the the horrors. And we should mention as well, that second show was originally scheduled for the 30th of June, 1970. Unsurprisingly, it was cancelled. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Eno, Ernie Johnson, Edgar Broughton, Extras... up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com